You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Luke 1.13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. So that's Annunciation, right? We also see very many gospel passages where the angel is telling Mary and Joseph what's up. It's delivering a message. Acts 11.13-14, And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So we clearly see that there is this messaging going on. This is a primary way that we interact with these things in scripture, but it's not the only way. So there are other other points there. Uh, The word angel as we use it, and as you see it in scripture, like Elohim, which is the divine being, the supernatural thing, as we were talking about in Genesis 6 and other places, is better understood as a general category that denotes specific roles. And this is uh, the way that we tend to use it without thinking about it. This is kind of a placeholder that has lots of little subsets under it. So here's an example. Consider a Navy ship such as the USS Nimitz, you know, our our great aircraft carrier. You meet a few seamen tiding to a messy deck, a chief petty officer overseeing task assignments, several ordnance operators tending to outboard weapons, lieutenants and commanders, and a captain all talking while the visiting admiral graces the vessel with his presence. It would not be inaccurate to call all of those people sailors. They are sailors. Now, we're not going to usually address an admiral as a sailor. I can already see Rob making a comment to somebody back there, you know, correcting my naval parlance. However, the idea is all of those people are sailors. But they're all obviously very different in what they do, in what they're good at, in what their purpose is. In the same way, when we talk about angel or see Elohim in scripture, this is not just a word that only means one thing. This is a category, and this is very typical, especially in Old Testament Hebrew, for you, you, if you know the context, the same word means a different thing. So there might be many ladies in a room, and there's one kid who walks in and says, hi, mom. Well, they're all moms, but that child knows who his mom is, and that's a specific person. That's often how we see angel or Elohim used. You know, when it's capitalized and it's even in its plural, it still might mean Yahweh, the great God, the highest of the high. But it can also mean little tiny messenger angel. If you know the context, and the Hebrews were much more attuned to that than us thousands of years later with our English translations, etc., there's more to be pulled out there. So we do see angel, archangel, seraph, cherub, throne, prince, power, all these different words that might only show up a time or two, but they're representing different categories. This is where we are talking about the lieutenant or the ordinance operator or whatnot, these specific types of this categorical word. I know it's a lot, especially uh, a lot of word issues there. Any questions before we move on? Rob's keeping quiet, so he's not gonna call me out on probably the incorrect naval hierarchy there, but it's all right. So we have two 
primary groups of angels when we think about it in terms of how we see them in scripture. We start with the elect angels, as in the good guys, these ones who do not fall from grace. There's a clear dichotomy in the Bible regarding those angelic beings who are loyal to Yahweh and those who have defected from the righteous created order through rebellion. Two camps. Mark 8:38 for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. 1 Timothy 5:21 in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. Word suggests that the elect angels, like elect people, were chosen by God and cannot lose their elect position. That's certainly what we take our great faith in. That applies also to these heavenly beings. None of these elect angels will rebel against God or lose their chosen status, just as Christians cannot lose their salvation as God's elect children. Obviously, we have lots to back that up. Secure in their standing before the Lord, elect angels cannot sin, or go against the commands of God, but will remain faithful to the Lord forever. Both angels and Christians are chosen and elected by the Lord, but only humans can experience the new birth, forgiveness, and other aspects of salvation. We've talked about this a few times already. We are a different creature. We might be you know, brothers in an extended family, so to speak, maybe cousins, but we are not the same. And for whatever reason, God has decided it is right and good that angels kind of have a binary state. You're either in or you're out. Whereas the created order down on earth with us, with flesh and spirit together, has a different reckoning. Jesus died for humanity, not for angels. He took on human flesh and came to save mankind from their sins. So there's obviously even though it's already perfected in God's plan, this is extra steps taken for our specific benefit, not for the order that was already there. Hebrews 2.16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And then earlier in the same, are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? different categories. We have people who will inherit salvation and angels who are sent to help them. They're not the same. Any questions here? I'll take a quick break. I realize I brought some books to hand around and didn't do so at the outset. Uh, many of these have been very helpful in this ongoing study and are all, they're all, well, except for this one, which is not easy to read, but I'll bring it anyway because it's useful to me at least. So there's uh, Fighting Satan. This is by Joel Beakey, who's the president of Puritan Reform Seminary. Excellent. And this is very small. You can see I'm, you know, trying not to bring in the huge tomes. These are simple, small, easy to read books. This one's very devotional, extremely practical understanding of what we've already been talking about. What are we up against and and what do we actually do? And we'll we'll cover spiritual warfare in this series specifically in a few weeks, but this is an excellent book. I'll pass these around here. John, you can start this. Um, Another class, we probably all know of this at least somewhat. This is C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, which is his, you know, kind of narrative dialogue of the various cohort of the adversary, scheming together for how to woo and tempt the hearts of man, especially 
to delude and confuse believers. Very good, very witty. Uh, you know, any, any narrative that Lewis writes tends to be very fun to read as well. Uh, this one is, is very good, The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. He's a more of a mainline evangelical Hebrew scholar. He died last year, I believe. Uh, but this is a very much a linguistic deep dive into the original context of when the Old Testament and the New Testament were written. So very much trying to say, if you just take the text at face value, what is it saying? He does get into some extra biblical stuff as well, which can be taken with a grain of salt, just as commentaries today would. So it's not a strictly scriptural study, but it's very helpful. I will say he's not a reform guy, so there's a, a, a moment in here where he starts talking about free will and determinism and the knowledge of God that I think, hmm, I'd take a pass on that. But where he stays in his wheelhouse, really good. So I recommend this one as well. <laughs> Thank you. And then this is the uh, definitely the driest book that I have for you today, Gods of the Nations. This has been Daniel Block. Uh, this is him. He's trying to look at the ancient Near East in the context in which the Old Testament especially was composed and looking at what, if you look at all the kind of comparative religions and myths in the area, how does a deity interact with their land on which they live and what does that mean about the people who are then under that umbrella? Really good, especially when we consider how often Yahweh talks about his relationship with his covenant people and how Israel is kind of a holy place, geographically speaking. Um, so there is some good to be gleaned in here, but this is definitely not a riveting reading. So that said, still worth your consideration if you're interested. Okay. So uh, one of the ways that we can think about all these different types of creatures, beings, our cousins, uh, would be this idea of hierarchy. And this is where we have to take all this with a grain of salt because there is only so much in the Bible that really gets at these things. This is where we, we take it on faith that God has this ordered well and where we have seen, in my opinion, a, a lot of error later on in theological development where well-intended speculation about these things, especially detail that we can't find in Scripture, somehow becomes accepted as the, the, the final word on some of these things. So I will look at one, one, uh, one of the church fathers who I think is maybe like the line in the sand where go here and go no further because after that we get into a lot of muddy waters and kind of making assumptions about the way these things work and what they do. And we just, yeah, you know, especially from our uh, sola scriptura position, can't back it up. So a little caution there as we get into it. But we still can think of many different orders of elect spiritual beings in scripture. As I said, the information is not robust. So we can make some distinctions, however, and we ought to. Isaiah 6, 2 through 3, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In, in that verse specifically, all four of those names are given a supernatural notation. So they are, they are these different categories even as called out in Colossians. So here's... Uh, the aforementioned church father, much more interesting name than mine, Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. I am Jim of Stowe. doesn't really have nearly the same oomph. So Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite was from the 5th century, so 400s AD, and this is you know, after the close of the Council of Nicaea. We, ha- we see a lot of early church history trying to formalize and, and reinforce the orthodoxy of the church, clarifying heresy, dispelling things that we should not dwell on, incorrect belief. And he wrote De Celesti Hierarchia, or On the Celestial Hierarchy. And he, he's basically just trying to say, here are the actual terms we see in Scripture. And what little context we have for them, he's trying to organize them in a way that makes more sense to us. And again, I will say we get kind of to this point and say, if we want to deep dive into speculation further, that's a bit of a risky enterprise. But so here's what he says, that there is an upper order of angelic beings, and these he sees as God-facing. They, when, we, when we see them in Scripture, they are interacting mostly in God's throne room or with the Lord himself. They are attending to him. These are the seraphim we already read about, the cherubim, and those are both, you know, we, we saw even last week, uh, Satan is referred to as a fallen cherub, as in he would have come out of this order. Also, in Ezekiel, there's like the idea of the living creatures, one with the head of a man, one with the head of a bull and a lion and an eagle. Uh, strange apocalyptic imagery, but that is what is ascribed to this same category of being. And then the ophanim, which only show up a few places, this is like the wheels within wheels idea in Ezekiel and also in Daniel. Uh, this is where I, I've seen you know, people say, you don't want to meet like a biblically accurate angel. It would probably be really terrifying because it's described as rings within rings, all covered in eyes and speaking in like a thousand voices. Yeah, I, there's a reason maybe angels say, hey, don't be afraid as soon as they show up because uh, that would be rather scary. But another interesting thing to think about is we have the, the, the strangest depictions of these creatures, but they're also all always seen as supporting directly God and his work in his throne at the highest height of heaven. They are the furthest from our experience, shall I say. And actually, as we see, what what this gentleman tries to do is show that as different types of beings get closer to dealing with us all the time, they tend to be more palatable in their appearance, maybe to lessen that shock factor. So he talks about the middle order, and this is what he describes as facing creation. This is where I also think we have the least to go on, so we kind of just have to take this one with a grain of salt. We see some of these words only once or twice. Dominions, virtues, and powers. And the virtues, at least what we have there, is the idea of this category of thing is servants as winds or flaming fire, maybe having to do with the elements of the world. But we don't really have any exhaustive commentary in Scripture to talk to us about these three groups. They're just there. We have to speculate with a reservation. 
And then he shows that there's a lower order, and this is man-facing. So this is more of what we're used to seeing in Scripture interacting with people. We have the principalities, the archangels, and the angels. And we've talked about principalities a little bit before. We looked at Daniel 10 in brief about, uh, remember, Daniel is trying to find out the interpretation to his dream and ask for the God to send an interpreter. So then the archangel Gabriel is dispatched. And then Gabriel says, sorry, it took me a few weeks to get here because the prince of Persia held me up. And then also the prince of Greece was trying to get on the action. It was a big scuffle in heaven. And you know, Daniel's, what? I'm just waiting for an interpretation of a dream. Whereas he's saying he was interrupted by some class of being that was actually able to hold him in place. So principalities we also see is that distinction of, um, I think we go back to the, the, the allotment of the nations, the Deuteronomy idea. This is what we're talking about. The princes, the, the archons, this idea of spirits that are over nations or geographical places. Those that have wrested worship that belongs to Yahweh and became pagan gods, but are also dispatched by Christ in his ascension. Then we have archangels and angels. And again, I'm, I'm talking about how they're specifically used in their, their means, not as a category. These are, we know they are types of creatures. Beyond these cursory observations, we have to look outside of Scripture for more detail. And again, that's why I say we don't want to indulge that. I think there absolutely is value in extra-biblical literature. There is value in commentary from other parts of the faith. There's a lot of, I mean, I've gotten into the weeds with a lot of Jewish mythology, which I recommend you go in with eyes wide open because that is some wild stuff. All that to say, though, the point of this survey especially is not to say, well, if the answers aren't in the Bible, we have to go find them somewhere else. No. This is definitely, out of all that we're covering, something where God and his uh, prudence has said, you don't really need to know tons about this. We have to take that, not in blind faith, but to say, okay. So, I say there is certainly more to see here, but it tends to be a bunch of well-intentioned Christian scholars sitting around kind of piecing together their own ideas and then codifying them. So by the next generation, they pick up the book and they go, oh, yeah, this is exactly what this means. When if you really trace it back to the Bible, you can't justify that. And I certainly want to caution us from doing that. So with all that, I've had almost no questions this morning. Are there any now? Yes, John. Well, these things are mentioned very briefly. Each of those passages, there's never more than a sentence or two, obviously. Um, these things tend to usually have, have meaning and significance. I can think of Jesus saying, this, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And, and usually the, the highlight appears, at least to me, to be to recognize that the spiritual realm exists mm-hmm. and to see that our fight is in the spiritual realm and then calls to prayer and calls to even, even fasting, calls to these, these various things, recognizing that it is not just through physical exertion that the spiritual aims will be accomplished. That appears to be the kind of what comes, it comes back to and then also for recognizing that there's something higher going on and things behind the scenes rather than what just physically being seen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so John's, John's point is well made in saying that we are given not a lot on this, enough that we know what's going on, enough that the Lord does intend to take us behind the counter a bit and say, hey, this reality is, is valid and there are interactions going on. But there is, for instance, there's no commentary in Scripture, no, no long verse form of anything that says, by the way, here's what all these angels do and why they are here. And you know, there's no like letter on the angels. They're just background characters. We certainly see them used importantly. And in some ways, they have very large ramifications to what we consider the context of the world. However, God says, I'm talking more about the gospel, for instance, more about who you are, more about who I am than more about who they are. And we just have to say, all right, uh, again, idle speculation is, uh, can be a danger if we're trying to read into scripture stuff that isn't there. So we want to be careful about that. Um, and there's also an interesting thing John had pointed out, you know, when, when there's some exorcism accounts in the New Testament, the disciples are baffled. They don't know what to do, and Christ says, only through prayer and fasting can this be done. And that is a good indicator of the few other places we see interactions between the high supernatural and the average person that we are not asked ever in Scripture to say, go and fight these things, go and destroy them, go and wage war with them. Even Daniel, he... Gabriel is filling him in on this, you know, big battle that he was involved with, and Daniel's kind of looking at him starstruck, like, what are you talking about? It's nothing to do with him. Or I think in Jude, uh, he makes a great point when Michael, I think when Michael was contesting with Satan over the bones of Moses, even then, when they were in struggle together, he did not perceive, uh, I think it says, he, he did not presume to blaspheme or to say anything aggressive. He just says, the Lord rebuke you. Even this archangel, who is one of the few we ever see in scripture repeated more than once, he says, it's not my job to fight you. God wins, and I will simply echo what he does. I think that's an encouragement to us. We'll talk about this more in the, the spiritual warfare element later as well. Any other comments or questions? Grace. So my question would be just, so with the, the hierarchy, are those places that the angels have in the upper order, middle order, or lower order, are those places earned? Like, can they get higher up in the order, or are those just given by God? The question is, in this rough outline of kind of the ordering of these beings, is it something that they earn? Can they move up and down this hierarchy? I would be inclined to say no, because it seems to me like the way we see these in Scripture, they are specific types of things doing specific types of things, as in the seraphim would very rarely be coming down and hanging out with us, just as the lower messenger angels are not necessarily ordering creation. I, again, I, don't, I can't speak in great detail to it, but I think that this is more of an ontology statement of what, is, what, what these beings are is their function. So we might, in a broad bucket, say all of these are angels. Again, all of these people on a ship are sailors. But when you look at it specifically, you see they are in specific places doing specific functions. You know, God clearly is a God of order and hierarchy. We see it in the created order down here. There's no reason to believe it's not in the created order up there. And that's kind of what this gentleman is getting at and what I think we can reasonably see in Scripture, even if we can't see much more than that. Chad? Does he imply that this reflected order is... 
That's a great question. So Chad is is asking, does Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, and I'll get tired of saying that, does, does he suggest that this is a hierarchy that also reflects fallen angels? Uh, he does not have any commentary on that specifically, though I think what we would see is that, and we're going to get into this even in shortly, I, I do think there is still a hierarchy there. I think we see that there are different categories of things, even on the dark side of the, the aisle, uh, that suggest there are different roles to be played there, too. Any other thoughts or questions here? All right. So looking then at fallen angels, angels who left their first estate and rebelled with Satan are considered fallen from grace and without hope for redemption. And we see this language in a few places. And again, there's not a lot to go on, but we can see some, some distinctions all the same. Jude, verses 5 to 7. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued strange flesh, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That is uh, some intense language to describe the perdition of angels who defect. And we see this paralleled, uh, leading to that, that when it's saying, as Sodom and Gomorrah, here's what happened there. Remember, this is when Lot is captured and uh, Abram has to go and kind of rescue him after this large battle. So he goes to Sodom and two angels came to Sodom at evening. Lot was seated beside the gate of Sodom. When he saw that, Lot rose up to meet them and bowed with his face to the earth. And the men of the city, the Sodomites, surrounded the house, young and old, the whole people together. And they kept calling Lot and saying to him, where are the men who came in with you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can know them. And that is uh, some sexual language in the end there. It is uh, a kind of a strange reversal. It's an ironic, chilling reversal of the arrangement in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Rather than the great angels taking human women in illicit sexual acts, the human men are trying to do the same with these angels. They recognized who these guys were and said, we're into that, which is a, a very deplorable state. And I mean, what happens to Sodom? It is, it is the most iconic place of sexual depravity in the history of the Bible. It is obliterated by God. So this passage in Jude, along with 2 Peter, speak directly to the pre-flood event, but also in this larger context of spiritual rebellion, saying this is happening in many places, in many ways. There is, we had a question last time, like, is there agency really in these beings to rebel? Absolutely, there is. And those who chose are fallen. Revelation 12, 7 and 8, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So we see even in that apocalyptic language, but it's referring to this throwing down of Satan from heaven. So his angels fought with him and fell. 
Any questions on this? Yeah, Jared. So yeah, so Jared's question is: Is there should there be the assumption that the the people of Sodom knew that these two gentlemen were angels? And I believe we should because we see not only are they called out as angels several times in this narrative, and in the the chapter before, before Abram goes to Sodom, before Lot gets out, we see it's the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, and two angels come and meet Abram at the Oaks of Mamre. That's where they and. and Abram recognizes who they are immediately. He bows down and worships them and makes them food, has them come into the house and shares a meal. And so these are, these are physical beings coming in, having a meal with Abram. It was very obvious to him who they were. And I think the, the, what we see there is that they went and then, because they're going to minister to Lot and help him, and they are certainly portrayed as something more than just two guys. One interesting point there, too, is that as looking into this, Jared, there are two primary words in the Hebrew for man, for men. There is Adam, which only ever refers to people. And there, and I don't know how to pronounce it correctly, it's I-S-H, ish or ish, can be both angel and man, like human and not human. Both mean man, both mean men, whenever you use them. So, and in this account, it's that word that's being used. These men showed up. So I do believe that we, we are informed enough to say the people in Sodom knew these were not average guys, that it was a special event. Otherwise, if two, two random guys show up, why is a whole town coming to Lot's house and saying, hey, who are those strangers? I think they said, no, really, who are those guys? There's something special. There's something out of the ordinary. And sadly, in the depravity of that city, their, their agenda was rather singular in what they would like to do. So that, I do think, we're, we're meant to see that it was known they were angelic. Melissa. It makes a lot more sense than the idea of the extension. I thought, like, even if this is not a blood, that it says specifically every single man in the city was storming Lot's house. Yeah. Yeah, Melissa points out, it does make a bit more sense when you think if, if every guy in the city was coming to the house, I mean, you think, who would ever want to go to Sodom then if they know this is the treatment any visitor gets? Because I, I, don't, I don't think that was the standard. It was that this was exceptional, and everyone there knew it, and that's why it was this big to-do. Rob, do you have a question? Uh, yeah, I would say that is um, someone in a... So Rob's thought is, you know, when these men are uh, come to be patronized, as it were, by the sodomites, Lot says, actually take my daughters instead of these guys, which again I think suggests that he knew that there was a lot of gravitas with these gentlemen who were in fact spiritual beings. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, not, not a good parenting move to say, 
take my virgin daughters instead. Uh, we should not do that. I think that's showing lots of weakness. And I, I mean, we're, we're chuckling because it's absurd, but uh, it was definitely not the right thing to do. I think it's rather, you know, he was in a shocking position. Mark? Jim, I, I remember reading about this, that um, in that culture, they, as soon as you went into their household, they had to protect you. And this was his uh, measure to, to try and protect his guests. Because, uh, they were under, that, under his uh, hospitality. So Mark's saying that, culturally speaking, it would have been the, the, the assumption that if you have a guest, you protect them, perhaps with all means necessary, and if they were being accosted by this pack of sodomites that they would say, well, the next best thing we can do is extend our daughters. So again, it's just an ugly story from start to finish, and it shows very much that the depravity of man is uh, often checked more than it is. In Sodom, I think that governor was taken off in God's ordering things to see how bad it could go. All right, let's go. Okay, came back on. Gotcha. Thank you, Chad. I know you're on it. All right, we'll move on here. Uh, long story short, Sodom and Gomorrah, the reason we know it uh, in infamy. So let's talk a bit about the nature then of these beings writ large. While angels and related spiritual creatures are referred to in some places simply as spirits, we also see several instances where they are very much physical beings interacting with the world as we do. Obviously, that period with Sodom is a great example. Another one is Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestles with the man, but this same figure is referred to twice as Elohim, divine being. Hosea 12 then refers to this incident and describes the being who wrestled with Jacob both as Elohim, divine, and Malach, this heavenly messenger, angel. We tend to understand it from a covenantal perspective. This was the angel of the Lord who Jacob was wrestling with. We also know that the outcome of this struggle, despite against a spiritually described person, was very physical. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Later on, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed, Peniel limping because of his hip. He goes on that uh, the people of Israel had a custom not to eat the, f- the flesh of that hip anywhere on an animal because it was in reference to this physical ailment, this, this injury. We see Mark 4.11, the angels minister to Christ in the wilderness following his temptations. They tend to his needs and care for his body. That is not something that we would see done by purely spiritual beings. In several gospel accounts where the angels shining at Christ's tomb rolled away the stone door. Was that, you know, with a little flick of his wrist? Or we were given the language to describe heave ho, there it goes. There was a real interaction. This is a distinction, too. We talked about it very, very early on in the series, the, the, the idea of supernatural versus preternatural. I know it sounds like a silly distinction, but supernatural being something that is truly beyond nature. This is God's work. You know, this is only something that our great creator God can do. Preternatural is kind of above or within nature, suggesting, you know, if this angel rolls up, despite coming out of a different place, out of a heavenly realm, can
can, with embodied power, push away this stone. That is a preternatural occurrence. Acts 5.19, the angel opens the prison door to physically allow Peter a natural means of escape. He doesn't just teleport Peter out of jail. He kicks open the door and says, get out of here, and shows him the way. Here's a hallway that I walked down to get here. Acts 12.7, a different angel strikes Peter to wake him up from sleep, saying, get up quickly. Again, he's not, now we've done it. He's rousing Peter actively with a hand, hitting him on the side, and talking to him audibly to tell him to get up. So we have to appreciate that this isn't, I think sometimes, again, this kind of pop culture consideration of what isn't on earth is just kind of this misty spirit cloud world that is beyond the veil. That's not how these things are described. Now, certainly some are purely spiritual, but many others are not described that way. And we, we've already seen, you know, whether, whether we're comfortable with it or not, there's the idea that there was intimacy between some of these things and people. Well, how does that work if they're just kind of floaty spirits? I don't know how it works. Frankly, I don't want to find out. But the idea is there was real physical commerce between people at very times and in many places. So we have to just say, okay. Any other questions before we get into this one? I saved the spiciest slide for last, so we actually have some time to get to it. Okay, moving on then. Are demons fallen angels? Typically, we assume that they are, and vice versa. But is that actually the case? The New Testament Greek and the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the original words translated as demon, daemon, or daemonion, were contextually neutral in terms of moral usage outside of Scripture. But within the Bible, they were always used negatively. That is to say, these are words used by the Greeks and used by other cultures similarly that would look at this sort of thing as not necessarily always bad. There could have been good demons. There could have been helpful demons. This is an idea of kind of the, the spirituality of the ancient Near East and the Hellenized world that this stuff was not necessarily bad. And we'll put a pin in this statement because as we look next time at occultism, this is very much the same idea. Is it really bad? Maybe these things are trying to help us. Maybe actually they're misunderstood and we should reach out to them. Please don't do that. So these words are used predominantly when we're talking about these, the actual root words for demons. They refer to inhabited idols, spirits of false gods, and unclean spirits. All throughout the New Testament, we often see Christ interacting with unclean spirits, either places or people afflicted by them. But in the Old Testament, it has a lot of worship language attributed to it. When the enemies of God bowed down to their idols, they were not, again, worshiping the rock. They were building a house for a spirit to come into and commune with that spirit. Inhabited idols, demons. In contrast, the words we see translated as demon are not used to translate to fallen angel. They're never in the same spot, meaning the same thing in the original languages. They are separate. So... They are perhaps two different categories of subject matter. The New Testament is silent on the origin of demons. 
There is no actual connection made between what we see elsewhere as fallen angels and demonic activities such as oppression, possession, and exorcism. These things are there, but again, there is no neat and tidy explanation for what they are. Any thoughts on that before I finish this slide? Grace. So just to clarify, demons are not fallen? What we see, so the question is simply, are demons fallen angels? No, yes. It seems that they are actually separate groups of things. That's why I think we, we tend to say Satan and his angels, Satan and his demons. Uh, maybe it's more appropriate just to say Satan and his horde, his cohort. There are lots of things out there. As we're, as we're looking at the text, we're seeing there's actually a lot more declension between these categories. We tend to make umbrella statement assumptions. That's not really what we see. Now, again, all throughout this, this is a, a niche consideration of this stuff. It's important, but we don't have huge tomes and volumes written about it in Scripture or in the immediate commentary. So we want to take it with a grain of salt, but it is worth investigating. So to quickly wrap this up, the prevailing Second Temple Jewish and early church interpretation of demons actually goes back to Genesis 6. We've talked about this before. Justin Martyr says, the angels transgressed that appointment and were captivated by love of women and begat children who are those that are now called demons. Eusebius, the great church historian, said, these demons are those giants and their spirits have been deified by generations of men. Their battles and quarrels and wars now the subject of equal legends and hauntings as dead half-gods. That is wild. But the connection there is both of these gentlemen, indicative of their time period, are saying the aftermath of that transgression in the Genesis leads to these entities. We see Job 26.5, the Rephaim tremble under the waters. And this is where I think we can see the connection, especially from the Hebrew context. Rephaim is the word closely related to Nephilim, it's referring to these most ancient of giants, kind of the progenitors of this idea, this concept. And it's also translated as ghosts, shades, and unclean shadows. This is talking about dead things deep in Sheol, the underworld. Again, this is not what we're typically talking about, but this is what the Jews understood kind of their cosmology of the world to look like. Deuteronomy 32.17 wraps this up. I mean, obviously, there's not wrapping it up. We could go for a long time here. But it says, they sacrifice to demons, not Yahweh. But that word for demon is shedim, which means shade, as in they were worshiping a spirit. They weren't worshiping a fallen angel. They were worshiping something categorically different. And again, there's a lot here. We're out of time. I'm not trying to cut you out. We'll take a question or two, but we could talk about this for a lot more. But I want to at least wrap it up that there is a consideration that these are different categories of things. It's all bad. It's all certainly aligned against the betterment of the gospel, but it isn't just one thing rubber stamped in every instance. So real quick, any questions? Jared. Yep. Is there any evidence, though, that 
divine demon spirit could relate to the physical world in that direct, like within the laws of physics. Yeah, great question. So Jared is saying, if we, if we can establish that angels certainly have a physicality to them, they can interact with the world, perhaps in a deep manner, then we would assume fallen angels can do the same thing too. If, if they are you know, both the same thing, they're just on different sides of the aisle, we would assume, yes, they would have some sort of preternatural interaction. Would these demonic spirits, these unclean spirits, be able to do the same? And I think what we see throughout Scripture, especially when we look at all the exorcism accounts of the New Testament, they are always embodying something in order to do stuff. In fact, that actually kind of explains, I think it's a helpful explanation. If these were, weird as it may be, you know, spirits of these giants, that were killed, most of them in the flood, and they're sent to wander over the earth, they lost their bodies. They want to get into something. They want to go back and sit in your idol. They want to go and you know, take over a, a, an occultist body or a witch or something like that or someone who's tormented by it. So I think you know, we, we have to kind of take that one with a grain of salt, Jared, but I believe that the indication from Scripture is that they would enter into something in order to regain that physical nature. And with that, I will pray and close us. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these deep mysteries and these curiosities. We pray that they would be for our edification, that we would consider that ultimately they all point to the supremacy of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his victory over all manner of darkness. May we consider this richly, but focus now on our preparation for worship in your house. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.